0: The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. But the object that most drew my attention in the mysterious package was a certain affair of fine red cloth, much worn and faded. There were traces about it of gold embroidery, which, however, was greatly frayed and defaced so that none or very little of the glitter was left. It had been wrought, as was easy to perceive, with wonderful skill of needlework. And the stitch, as I am assured by ladies conversant with such mysteries, gives evidence of a now-forgotten art, not to be recovered, even by the process of picking out the threads. This rag of scarlet cloth, for time and wear, and a sacrilegious moth had reduced it to little other than a rag, on careful examination, assumed the shape of a letter. It was the capital letter A. By an accurate measurement, each limb proved to be precisely three inches and a quarter in length. It had been intended, there could be no doubt, as an ornamental article of dress. But how it was to be worn, or what rank, honor, and dignity in bypassed times were signified by it, was a riddle which so evanescent are the fashions of the world in these particulars, I saw little hope of solving. And yet, it strangely interested me. My eyes fastened themselves upon the old scarlet letter, and would not be turned aside. Certainly, there was some deep meaning in it, most worthy of interpretation, and which, as it were, streamed forth from the mystic symbol, subtly communicating itself to my sensibilities— but evading the analysis of my mind. While thus perplexed, and cogitating, among other hypotheses, whether the letter might not have been one of those decorations which the white men used to contrive in order to take the eyes of Indians, I happened to place it upon my breast. It seemed to me—the reader may smile, but must not doubt my word—it seemed to me, then— that I experienced a sensation not altogether physical, yet almost so, of burning heat, and as if the letter were not of red cloth, but red-hot iron. I shuddered, and involuntarily let it fall upon the floor. Hmm. That's Nathaniel Hawthorne writing about his encounter with a powerful object. The passage comes in the Custom House, which is part of the introduction to the Scarlet Letter, as we see a common clerk in the 1840s run across an old package which contains some artifacts from 17th century Puritan society. What has given this object such power for nearly 200 years? Is it dark magic, God's wrath, or the power invested by humans, the accusers, were the accused, the holiest of peoples, targeting a sinful woman, much as their society targeted demons and witches and heretics, and the proud woman targeting them right back. We are taking a deep dive into The Scarlet Letter, today on The History of Literature. Here we go. Hello everyone. Welcome to the History of Literature. I'm Jack Wilson. Last time we talked about Nathaniel Hawthorne and his distinction between romances and novels, among other topics. As a refresher, Hawthorne viewed novels as fact-based and historical, almost closer to a documentary, the sort of thing that, although it was fiction, stuck close to the actual or the highly probable. Romances and he called The Scarlet Letter a romance, such a thing, were a different type of fiction. Set aside romance, meaning love between two people, or romance novels as we understand them today. For Hawthorne, romance was more like what you'd find in Sir Walter Scott or Alexander Dumas, in which history was an inspiration for the story, but the author is free to imagine his or her way into something that might not have actually occurred. The supernatural is fair game. As we see in that introduction, we are invited to imagine a piece of rag so powerful that 200 years later, it can sear someone's breast, give, give off a sensation of heat, even before the narrator knows what power it has. He doesn't know what it is. He doesn't know what the A stands for or who it belonged to or any such thing. He learns that later. Imagine putting on a sweater, and it feels like your skin is burning. And then you learn that the sweater belonged to Adolf Hitler. Suddenly, we are imagining evil and swirling demons and powerful unseen forces that can infuse a physical object with something beyond our comprehension. It can be passed down through time. Hawthorne says, for a novel, this wouldn't work. He had such a thing. If he was writing a novel, I don't think he would have included this as part of the introduction. But for a romance, yes, it's fair game. Authors should be sparing. Don't go crazy. You might lose your readers. It's a spice for the main dish. You don't serve it up as the main dish. But even if you overseason, it's not a literary crime, as long as it's a romance we're talking about and not a novel. Think about how Hawthorne makes this happen in the Custom House. You can imagine it another way. You can imagine him reading about Hester Prynne and this letter that she wore and then finding the rag and then placing it to his breast and then feeling it searing his chest. That would be different, wouldn't it? Imagine someone said to you, well, here's a sweater owned by Adolf Hitler. And for some reason... You put your arm through the sleeve and you tried it on and then you felt like your skin was burning. We would have a different explanation for that phenomenon, right? You'd say, well, the person who put it on knew how evil Hitler was and his mind stepped in and was so repulsed by this sweater and the feel of it against his skin, his mind, his psychology made his skin feel that way. He imagined his skin was hot and burning because he was thinking about the person who had worn that sweater. That would be the most plausible explanation. We see a ghost or a UFO, we think the viewer imagined it. They wanted to believe. They had some kind of disruption in their senses. Something fooled them. They dreamed it up, whatever. It tells us ghosts aren't real. UFOs aren't there. And a sweater or a piece of rag shaped like an A is just like that. Common clothing yarn and thread. But Hawthorne puts us in a different world. The one where the user, let's say our, going back to our sweater example, a user tries on a dozen sweaters, let's say, and then one burns his flesh and someone says, oh my God, look at this. A-H on the tag. This belonged to Adolf Hitler. Now it's not a trick. Now it's not in the mind of the wearer. It's a strange coincidence. It's uncanny. It suggests that there's Something more powerful than us out there that can cause these sensations. Not just any old not just any old sweater, but with a figure like Hitler. Or in our case, a figure like Hester Prynne, the protagonist of the Scarlet Letter, who's been condemned by a fiercely religious puritanical, literally, puritanical society, a community where you can't stray outside of a tiny cleared area or you'll face the dangers of the forests. She's locked into that community, uh, and a woman who strays from the tribal wisdom of it departs from the self-imposed moral constraints and is condemned for it. And then she defies it and lives with it. And all of this sin and guilt and condemnation and proud defiance goes crashing into this single object the sign of her guilt and her society's determination of it their judgment of her and the sign the sign of her proud defiance too and so it lies there for centuries being eaten by moths and in a dark and dingy warehouse for years until a man picks it up himself a descendant of those judging people by the way literally, a descendant of a man called the Hanging Judge for the number of witches he sent to the gallows. But this man now, in the mid-19th century, works in an administrative job. He picks it up, picks up the letter, for some reason feels compelled to put it on his breast, and it feels like it's burning him. What a story. So, here's what we're going... This is 1850... The Scarlet Letter. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to read the first 10 pages or so of this fantastic book. I think we'll read the first two chapters. We'll call this the annotated version of The Scarlet Letter. I got some emails from people saying, you're right about Hawthorne. I study him. (laughs) I specialize in him. Some grad students weighing in. But I don't love him. You were right about that, Jack find it hard to read him sometimes. It's exhausting. What is it about him? What is it about his prose? What is it about that intellect? It's very Henry James-like in that sense. You need to have an appetite for it. But once you do, once you do encounter Hawthorne and James, it's a little bit hard to go back to some of the other authors too. They seem a little too light, a little too fluffy not quite serious enough, not quite intense enough. So what we're going to do here is give you a taste of how I would read The Scarlet Letter, the first 10 pages, to get you started. For those of you who are interested in reading the book or rereading it, maybe you read it in high school, struggled with it. Maybe it's time to read it again, or maybe you've never read it, and you're wondering what all the fuss has been about. So, We'll call this the Jack Wilson annotated version of the first two chapters of The Scarlet Letter. I'm not going to read the custom house aloud. I've given you a taste of that at the start. You're welcome to read it. My wife, who wrote a PhD thesis on it, would certainly recommend that you do it. Luckily, she's not listening to this, I'm assuming. She would probably be quite upset that I wasn't demanding that you all read it. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's essential to her understanding of the work. So, anyway, we'll do the annotated version. I'll stop here and there to point a few things out as if you're as if I'm reading it aloud and we're in a room together and once in a while I pause just to comment on something. Won't be too much. So, this won't be a an encyclopedia, won't be in a, a comprehensive work of criticism won't be a phd thesis this isn't a, a full reading of the novel either for all that you can go to an encyclopedia a critical work or an audiobook this is something different we'll see how it goes this is me and you starting to read a book together with me pausing here and there maybe a little maybe a lot well it'll be a little on the little side i'll show you how i read this book and you can listen along with me and then you can go and read the rest on your own if you choose okay we're trying something new this year. I hope you enjoy it. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the cat in the hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get Fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes... The Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus, in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. The Scarlet Letter by Nathaniel Hawthorne Chapter 1. The Prison Door A throng of bearded men in sad-colored garments and gray, steeple-crowned hats, intermixed with women, some wearing hoods and others bareheaded, was assembled in front of a wooden edifice— the door of which was heavily timbered with oak and studded with iron spikes. Let me pause there. That's it. That's the first paragraph. Look at Hawthorne's control. He sets the scene. Bearded men, gray steeple-crowned hats, women in hoods and bareheaded. These are the Puritans. We know this. We see them in drawings and art. We know this is one of Hawthorne's things. For Americans or should I say residents of the United States. This is a familiar sight. But look at how he manages our view of this. Nina Bame points this out as well. in Her introduction to one of the penguin editions. The men are wearing sad colored garments, Hawthorne says. They might be brown or black or gray, but Hawthorne doesn't want to leave the picture to chance. He doesn't want us to imagine bright browns or Or deep grays, chipper grays. He wants the mood to be dour. These are serious people, very concerned to avoid ornament. Their souls risk eternal hellfire if they do. These are deathly serious people. And where are they? A wooden building with a heavy oak door studded with iron spikes. What an opening, this paragraph. This. Sentence. What are these people doing at this place? This throng of people. We don't see them churning butter or washing their garments in the river. We don't see them singing in church or admiring the sunset as God's creation or helping one another plant crops or raise a barn. We don't see a Thanksgiving feast. We see them at a wooden door studded with spikes a prison door. The deathly serious people have gathered around a deathly serious place. Let's continue. The founders of a new colony, whatever utopia of human virtue and happiness they might originally project, have invariably recognized it among their earliest practical necessities, to allot a portion of the virgin soil as a cemetery, and another portion as the site of a prison. In accordance with this rule, it may safely be assumed that the forefathers of Boston had built the first prison house somewhere in the vicinity of Cornhill, almost as seasonably as they marked out the first burial ground on Isaac Johnson's lot, and round about his grave, which subsequently became the nucleus of all the congregated sepulchres in the old churchyard of King's Chapel." Certain it is that, some fifteen or twenty years after the settlement of the town, the wooden jail was already marked with weather stains and other indications of age, which gave a yet darker aspect to its beetle-browed and gloomy front. The rust on the ponderous ironwork of its oaken door looked more antique than anything else in the new world. Like all that pertains to crime, it seemed never to have known a youthful era. Before this ugly edifice, and between it and the wheel track of the street, was a grass plot, much overgrown with burdock, pigweed, apple peru, and such unsightly vegetation, which evidently found something congenial in the soil that had so early borne the black flower of civilized society, a prison. But on one side of the portal, and rooted almost at the threshold, was a wild rose bush, covered, in this month of June, with its delicate gems, which might be imagined to offer their fragrance and fragile beauty to the prisoner as he went in, and to the condemned criminal as he came forth to his doom, in token that the deep heart of nature could pity and be kind to him. The rose bush, by a strange chance, has been kept alive in history— But whether it had merely survived out of the stern old wilderness, so long after the fall of the gigantic pines and oaks that originally overshadowed it, or whether, as there is fair authority for believing, it had sprung up under the footsteps of the sainted Anne Hutchinson as she entered the prison door, we shall not take upon us to determine. Finding it so directly on the threshold of our narrative— which is now about to issue from that inauspicious portal, we could hardly do otherwise than pluck one of its flowers and present it to the reader. It may serve, let us hope, to symbolize some sweet moral blossom that may be found along the track or relieve the darkening close of a tale of human frailty and sorrow. Hmm. That's the end of chapter one, okay? A little nod to the reader there. We're handing you a rose. Is it a flower? Is it thorny? Is it representative of what you're about to hear? A moral blossom? A lesson? Or do we hand it to you almost as an apology to say, we know this is dark. Here's a flower. We're going to make it through. Anne Hutchinson, by the way, did you catch that reference? Some say this rose bush. Sprang up under the footsteps of the sainted Anne Hutchinson as she entered the door. Let's back up a paragraph. Hawthorne says, Utopian communities, like the Puritans of the 1620s and 30s, they arrive here in the new world looking for a new start. Everything will be better. They think we'll be free. We can make our new life in this new world. We'll have a fresh new society, one based on our beliefs. We'll avoid oppression. And in this case, They can say their Christianity and the purity of their views of what to believe and how to worship, this is what they're looking for. It's a beautiful promise that they tell themselves. They say, this is how we want our lives to be. And so they arrive and they get to work building a church and a school and whatever else they have in mind for their utopian community in their brand new world. But they soon find human beings in human existence being what it is, that they need a couple of other things. They will need a cemetery. Inevitably, reality will attack and death will occur. And secondly, they will need a prison. Humans are not perfect and they're not perfectible. Jails are inevitable. It's only a matter of time. Which brings us to Anne Hutchinson, who Hawthorne, dipping into romance again, says might have initiated this rose bush. He says, "Some may, we're not going to say for sure what happened. I'll just tell you that it might have sprouted, this bush, after she stepped toward this prison door. The sainted Anne Hutchinson, he says. Who was she? Well, she was a historical figure, an early Puritan settler. She was a spiritual advisor who had views at odds with some of the other church leaders, and she was charismatic and convincing. And eventually, she was part of a movement that almost split the Puritans into two. She had 11 children, and she worked in the new colony as a midwife. And while she was a midwife, she talked to the women about her view of God and Christianity, and soon she was hosting 60 women a week in her home, and the men wanted to attend as well. She followed the teachings of a minister whom she had followed when she was in London, a man named John Cotton, whose doctrine put less emphasis on personal conduct and more on epiphanies or moments of religious transcendence, the conversion experience in which mortal man was infused with a divine grace. The theology was especially compelling to women One can imagine why conduct could be judged by others and who was doing the judging? Men. Fathers and husbands, they might tell you how to dress and how to talk and how to behave and how to fear God and how to worship and and how to worship God and what to believe. They might condemn you for your actions. They might tell you that they have found you sinful or wanting. If you don't do what they say, you won't go to heaven and you might wind up in hell and Anne Hutchinson offered another path for a spiritual seeker. Anne Hutchinson was imprisoned and eventually banished, and Hawthorne says, look at Anne Hutchinson, not just Anne Hutchinson, the sainted Anne Hutchinson, who dared to defy the judgment of these Puritan clergy, these church elders, these men. Look at what they told her, that they controlled her, that they alone could determine if her conduct was wanting or deserving of punishment for her own good, which is how they would put it. And she objected in the name of God and the name of her religious beliefs and her spirituality, and they locked her up for it, and they kicked her out. Hawthorne is saying, I'm about to offer you another woman who's in that same kind of world, who also faced the judgment of her peers. Let's see who she was and what happened to her. We'll do that with chapter two after this. Chapter 2. The Marketplace. The grass plot before the jail, in Prison Lane, on a certain summer morning not less than two centuries ago, was occupied by a pretty large number of the inhabitants of Boston, all with their eyes intently fastened on the iron-clamped oaken door amongst any other population, or at a later period in the history of New England, the grim rigidity that petrified the bearded physiognomies of these good people would have augured some awful business in hand. It could have betokened nothing short of the anticipated execution of some noted culprit, on whom the sentence of a legal tribunal had but confirmed the verdict of public sentiment. But, In that early severity of the Puritan character, an inference of this kind could not so indubitably be drawn. It might be that a sluggish bond-servant, or an undutiful child, whom his parents had given over to the civil authority, was to be corrected at the whipping-post. It might be that an antinomian, a Quaker, or other heterodox religionist was to be scourged out of the town or an idle and vagrant Indian, whom the white man's firewater had made riotous about the streets, was to be driven with stripes into the shadow of the forest. It might be, too, that a witch, like old Mistress Hibbins, the bitter-tempered widow of the magistrate, was to die upon the gallows." In either case, there was very much the same solemnity of demeanour on the part of the spectators, as befitted a people amongst whom religion and law were almost identical, and in whose character both were so thoroughly interfused that the mildest and the severest acts of public discipline were alike made venerable and awful. Meagre, indeed, and cold was the sympathy that a transgressor might look for from such bystanders at the scaffold. On the other hand, a penalty which, in our days, would infer a degree of mocking infamy and ridicule, might then be invested with almost as stern a dignity as the punishment of death itself. It was a circumstance to be noted, on the summer morning when our story begins its course, that the women, of whom there were several in the crowd, appeared to take a peculiar interest in whatever penal infliction might be expected to ensue. The age had not so much refinement that any sense of impropriety restrained the wearers of petticoat and farthingale from stepping forth into the public ways, and wedging their not unsubstantial persons, if occasion were, into the throng nearest to the scaffold at an execution. Morally, as well as materially, there was a coarser fiber in those wives and maidens of old English birth and breeding than in their fair descendants, separated from them by a series of six or seven generations, for, throughout that chain of ancestry, every successive mother has transmitted to her child a fainter bloom, a more delicate and briefer beauty, and a slighter physical frame, if not a character of less force and solidity than her own. The women— who were now standing about the prison door, stood within less than half a century of the period when the man-like Elizabeth had been the not altogether unsuitable representative of the sex. They were her countrywomen, and the beef and ale of their native land, with a moral diet not a whit more refined, entered largely into their composition. The bright morning sun, therefore, shone on broad shoulders and well-developed busts, and on round and ruddy cheeks that had ripened in the far-off island, and had hardly yet grown paler or thinner in the atmosphere of New England. There was, moreover, a boldness and rotundity of speech among these matrons, as most of them seemed to be, that would startle us at the present day, whether in respect to its purport or its volume of tone. "'Good wives,' said a hard-featured dame of fifty. I'll tell ye a piece of my mind. It would be greatly for the public behoof if we women, being of mature age and church members in good repute, should have the handling of such malefactresses as this Hester Prynne. What think ye, gossips? If the hussy stood up for judgment before us five, that are now here in a knot together, would she come off with such a sentence as the worshipful magistrates have awarded? Mary, I trow not. People say, said another, that the Reverend Master Dimmesdale, her godly pastor, takes it very grievously to heart that such a scandal should have come upon his congregation. The magistrates are God-fearing gentlemen, but merciful overmuch, that is a truth. "'added a third autumnal matron. "'At the very least, "'they should have put the brand "'of a hot iron on Hester Prynne's forehead. Madame Hester would have winced at that, "'I warrant me. "'But she, the naughty baggage, "'little will she care "'what they put upon the bodice of her gown. "'Why, look you! "'She may cover it with a brooch "'or such heathenish adornment, "'and so walk the streets "'as brave as ever.' "'Ah, but!' "'interposed more softly a young wife "'holding a child by the hand, "'let her cover the mark as she will. "'The pang of it will always be in her heart.' "'What do we talk of marks and brands, "'whether on the bodice of her gown "'or the flesh of her forehead?' "'cried another female, "'the ugliest as well as the most pitiless "'of these self-constituted judges. "'This woman has brought shame upon us all "'and ought to die.' Is there not law for it? Truly there is, both in the scripture and the statute book. Then let the magistrates, who have made it of no effect, thank themselves if their own wives and daughters go astray. Mercy on us, good wife, exclaimed a man in the crowd. Is there no virtue in woman, save what springs from a wholesome fear of the gallows? That is the hardest word yet. Hush now, gossips for the lock is turning in the prison door, and here comes Mistress Prynne herself. Let me pause here after this conversation. This is Jack. One last time before I get out of the way of the story, I just want to note that Hawthorne has a gesture of brilliance here where he puts the harshest condemnation of Hester Prynne in the minds and on the tongues of the women. The men are responsible for all this, of course, this whole society. They've largely been the ones who have imposed this religion, the harshness of these views on their community, and Hawthorne doesn't shy away from giving us his views of these people. Too harsh, too judgmental, too unwilling to acknowledge human frailty. He says these are people who flogged Quakers and antinomians and Indians who were drunk on the white man's alcohol. These people hanged suspected witches. They whipped sluggish servants and undutiful children. As he puts it, these were, quote, a people amongst whom religion and law were almost identical and in whose character both were so thoroughly interfused that the mildest and the severest acts of public discipline were alike made venerable and awful, End quote. But don't you feel that weight of condemnation in the way The women are looking at her, talking about Hester Prynne. Doesn't that recall high school and the way that slut-shaming works? Men are quiet, a little sheepish. They know they're complicit. They know there's a double standard. They're happy to let women take the lead on that. They're silent supporters of it. And here we see it from these hard-featured women and the autumnal matron. Author says, these are English women from England. They haven't been softened in the way that the next hundred or so years softened the American women of New England as each generation handed down a little less severity, a little more kindness, a little more softness. These women were close to Elizabeth, the man like Elizabeth, the conquering queen. Their diet was all beef and ale. <laughs> Such a funny detail. Their diet was beef and ale, and they liked their religion strong and full of protein, too. Outside the prison, there, they stand in a knot, calling for Hester Prynne to be branded with hot iron on her forehead. The hussy, they say, with her naughty baggage. And they hate this punishment. It's too soft. It's getting away scot-free. What irks them? That she'll be able to walk around proud. Isn't that like slut-shaming? I ask you, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, I just don't want her to be all high and mighty. That's the at bottom, right? At bottom of at the heart of slut-shaming is jealousy. The idea that men like her and I don't like that. I want her to pay for it. I don't want her to have that confidence, that sexual freedom. It's a twisted society that puts all these thoughts in people's minds. It's the same society that produces eating disorders and back alley abortion clinics and abuse that gets covered up. It's overvaluing sex appeal. I'm talking now about our own day, really. It's overvaluing sex appeal with magazine covers and television stars And now the internet, all of it putting women's looks and women's bodies under a microscope, a catty microscope. And by catty, I mean men as well as women. They can be catty too. And all of it is fueled by a huge money-making machine. And yet, even though we value sex appeal and women in bikinis who sell beard of couch potato losers and all that. At the same time, we treat sex like it's something to be ashamed of all the time, especially for women. And Hawthorne says, it's been that way for a long time. I mean, he's not saying that. That's what he says to me. Maybe the medium has changed, but the message hasn't. We can assume it was there in the 19th century since it rang true to Hawthorne and he's delivering us these words in the mouths of these gossips. And we can see from this depiction that Hawthorne imagined it was the same in the 17th as well. One woman says, does this woman even need a physical punishment at all? She has a baby. She'll be a single mom. She's in this community where everyone knows who she is and what she did. Why would we brand her forehead? She will have a baby. That's going to be the mark of her sin. And the ugliest and most pitiless of all the women Just says, brand her forehead, she should be killed. The scripture and the statute book says we can kill her for this. Let's do it. And then a man chimes in. The man who's sheepish at the slut-shaming as men often are. Because the men, they don't want to be. They don't want it exposed that they were part of this. Right? There's some man who's involved in this, too. The man says, my God, you're calling for the death penalty for this? His argument is interesting. He doesn't say, where's our compassion, my friends? Or who are we to judge? Or our religion calls for forgiveness, does it not? No. He says, we have to scare women into morality with the gallows. That's all we have. We can expect no better from them otherwise. It's a striking passage. Who do you scare into acting well, people? Who do we reserve that for? Animals, slaves, children, the mentally infirm, and in this case, women. At least in the view of the knot of women who are calling for a harsher punishment for their fellow woman. I'm telling you, Hawthorne. I know he doesn't go down as easy as Mark Twain or. A contemporary author, but this is good stuff lots to think about here I'm sort of fascinated just by the idea that his view of women was that the ones who came from England were fierce <laughs> living on their diet of beef and ale and then they softened over time he was talking to the women of his own generation his own period and saying you guys are you guys have changed those women that I 'm reading about in this 17th century. Wow. (laughs) Fierce creatures. Okay. Now we're getting to Hester. Remember, this is a society where you can't wear so much as a bright color, where you must follow even the minutest religious doctrine with scrupulous rigidity the door of the jail being flung open from within, there appeared in the first place, like a black shadow emerging into sunshine, the grim and grisly presence of the town beetle, with a sword by his side and his staff of office in his hand. This personage prefigured and represented in his aspect the whole dismal severity of the Puritanic Code of Law, which it was his business to administer in its final And closest application to the offender. Stretching forth the official staff in his left hand, he laid his right upon the shoulder of a young woman, whom he thus drew forward until, on the threshold of the prison door, she repelled him by an action marked with natural dignity and force of character, and stepped into the open air as if by her own free will. She bore in her arms a child. A baby of some three months old, who winked and turned aside its little face from the too vivid light of day, because its existence heretofore had brought it acquainted only with the grey twilight of a dungeon or other darksome apartment of the prison. When the young woman, the mother of this child, stood fully revealed before the crowd, it seemed to be her first impulse to clasp the infant closely to her bosom not so much by an impulse of motherly affection, as that she might thereby conceal a certain token, which was wrought or fastened into her dress. In a moment, however, wisely judging that one token of her shame would but poorly serve to hide another, she took the baby on her arm, and, with a burning blush, and yet a haughty smile, and a glance that would not be abashed, looked around at her townspeople and neighbors. On the breast of her gown, in fine red cloth, surrounded with an elaborate embroidery and fantastic flourishes of gold thread, appeared the letter A. It was so artistically done, and with so much fertility and gorgeous luxuriance of fancy, that it had all the effect of a last and fitting decoration to the apparel which she wore, and which was of a splendor in accordance with the taste of the age, but greatly beyond what was allowed by the sumptuary regulations of the colony. The young woman was tall, with a figure of perfect elegance on a large scale. She had dark and abundant hair, so glossy that it threw off the sunshine with a gleam, and a face which, besides being beautiful from regularity of feature and richness of complexion, had the impressiveness belonging to a marked brow and deep black eyes. She was ladylike, too, after the manner of the feminine gentility of those days, characterized by a certain state and dignity, rather than by the delicate, evanescent, and indescribable grace which is now recognized as its indication. And never had Hester Prynne appeared more ladylike in the antique interpretation of the term than as she issued from the prison. Those who had before known her, and had expected to behold her dimmed and obscured by a disastrous cloud, were astonished, and even startled, to perceive how her beauty shone out, and made a halo of the misfortune and ignominy in which she was enveloped. It may be true that, to a sensitive observer, there was something exquisitely painful in it. Her attire, which, indeed, she had wrought for the occasion, in prison, and had modeled much after her own fancy, seemed to express the attitude of her spirit, the desperate recklessness of her mood, by its wild and picturesque peculiarity. But the point which drew all eyes, and, as it were, transfigured the wearer, so that both men and women, who had been familiarly acquainted with Hester Prynne, were now impressed— as they beheld her for the first time, was that scarlet letter, so fantastically embroidered and illuminated upon her bosom, it had the effect of a spell, taking her out of the ordinary relations with humanity and enclosing her in a sphere by herself. She hath good skill at her needle, that's certain, remarked one of her female spectators, but did ever a woman, "'before this brazen hussy contrive such a way of showing it. "'Why, gossips, "'what is it but to laugh "'in the faces of our godly magistrates "'and make a pride out of what they, "'worthy gentlemen, "'meant for a punishment?' "'It were well,' "'muttered the most iron-visaged "'of the old dames, "'if we stripped Madame Hester's rich gown "'off her dainty shoulders. "'And as for the red letter,' "'which she hath stitched so curiously, "'I'll bestow a rag of mine own rheumatic flannel "'to make a fitter one.' "'Oh, peace, neighbors, peace,' "'whispered their youngest companion. "'Do not let her hear you. "'Not a stitch in that embroidered letter, "'but she has felt it in her heart.' "'The grim beetle now made a gesture with his staff. "'Make way, good people, make way in the king's name.' cried he. Open a passage, and, I promise ye, Mistress Prynne shall be set where man, woman, and child may have a fair sight of her brave apparel, from this time till an hour past Meridian, a blessing on the righteous colony of the Massachusetts, where iniquity is dragged out into the sunshine. Come along, Madam Hester, and show your scarlet letter in the marketplace. A lane was forthwith opened through the crowd of spectators, preceded by the beadle and attended by an irregular procession of stern-browed men and unkindly visaged women, Hester Prynne set forth towards the place appointed for her punishment. A crowd of eager and curious schoolboys, understanding little of the matter in hand, except that it gave them a half-holiday, ran before her progress, turning their heads continually to stare into her face and at the winking baby in her arms, and at the ignominious letter on her breast. It was no great distance, in those days, from the prison door to the marketplace. Measured by the prisoner's experience, however, it might be reckoned a journey of some length, for, haughty as her demeanor was, she perchance underwent an agony from every footstep of those that thronged to see her. As if her heart had been flung into the street for them all to spurn and trample upon. In our nature, however, there is a provision, alike marvellous and merciful, that the sufferer should never know the intensity of what he endures by its present torture, but chiefly by the pang that rankles after it. With almost a serene deportment, therefore, Hester Prynne passed through this portion of her ordeal and came to a sort of scaffold at the western extremity of the marketplace. It stood nearly beneath the eaves of Boston's earliest church, and appeared to be a fixture there. In fact, this scaffold constituted a portion of a penal machine, which now, for two or three generations past, has been merely historical and traditionary among us, but was held in the old time to be as effectual an agent in the promotion of good citizenship as ever was the guillotine among the terrorists of France. It was, in short, the platform of the pillory, and above it rose the framework of that instrument of discipline so fashioned as to confine the human head in its tight grasp and thus hold it up to the public gaze. The very ideal of ignominy was embodied and made manifest in this contrivance of wood and iron there can be no outrage, methinks, against our common nature, whatever be the delinquencies of the individual, no outrage more flagrant than to forbid the culprit to hide his face for shame, as it was the essence of this punishment to do. In Hester Prynne's instance, however, as not unfrequently in other cases, her sentence bore that she should stand a certain time upon the platform but without undergoing that gripe about the neck and confinement of the head, the proneness to which was the most devilish characteristic of this ugly engine. Knowing well her part, she ascended a flight of wooden steps and was thus displayed to the surrounding multitude at about the height of a man's shoulders above the street. Had there been a papist among the crowd of Puritans, he might have seen in this beautiful woman, so picturesque in her attire and mien, and with the infant at her bosom, an object to remind him of the image of divine maternity, which so many illustrious painters have vied with one another to represent, something which should remind him, indeed, but only by contrast, of that sacred image of sinless motherhood, whose infant was to redeem the world. Here there was the taint of deepest sin, in the most sacred quality of human life, working such effect that the world was only the darker for this woman's beauty and the more lost for the infant that she had borne. The scene was not without a mixture of awe, such as must always invest the spectacle of guilt and shame in a fellow creature, before society shall have grown corrupt enough to smile instead of shuddering at it. The witnesses of Hester Prynne's disgrace had not yet passed beyond their simplicity. They were stern enough to look upon her death, had that been the sentence, without a murmur at its severity. But had none of the heartlessness of another social state, which would find only a theme for jest, in an exhibition like the present. Even had there been a disposition to turn the matter into ridicule, it must have been repressed, and overpowered by the solemn presence of men no less dignified than the governor and several of his counselors, a judge, a general, and the ministers of the town, all of whom sat or stood in a balcony of the meeting-house looking down upon the platform. When such personages could constitute a part of the spectacle, without risking the majesty or reverence of rank and office, it was safely to be inferred that the infliction of a legal sentence would have an earnest and effectual meaning. Accordingly, the crowd was somber and grave. The unhappy culprit sustained herself as best a woman might, under the heavy weight of a thousand unrelenting eyes, all fastened upon her and concentrated at her bosom. It was almost intolerable to be borne. Of an impulsive and passionate nature, she had fortified herself to encounter the stings and venomous stabs of public contumely, wreaking itself in every variety of insult. But there was a quality so much more terrible in the solemn mood of the popular mind that she longed rather to behold all those rigid countenances contorted with scornful merriment and herself the object, had a roar of laughter burst from the multitude each man, each woman, each little shrill-voiced child contributing their individual parts. Hester Prynne might have repaid them all with a bitter and disdainful smile. But, under the leaden infliction which it was her doom to endure, she felt, at moments, as if she must needs shriek out with the full power of her lungs, and cast herself from the scaffold down upon the ground, or else go mad at once. Yet there were intervals when the whole scene in which she was the most conspicuous object seemed to vanish from her eyes or at least glimmered indistinctly before them like a mass of imperfectly shaped and spectral images her mind and especially her memory was preternaturally active and kept bringing up other scenes than this roughly hewn street of a little town on the edge of the western wilderness Other faces then were lowering upon her from beneath the brims of those steeple-crowned hats. Reminiscences, the most trifling and immaterial, passages of infancy and school days, sports, childish quarrels, and the little domestic traits of her maiden years came swarming back upon her, intermingled with recollections of whatever was gravest in her subsequent life, one picture precisely as vivid as another— as if all were of similar importance or all alike a play. Possibly it was an instinctive device of her spirit to relieve itself by the exhibition of these phantasmagoric forms from the cruel weight and hardness of the reality. Be that as it might, the scaffold of the pillory was a point of view that revealed to Hester Prynne the entire track along which she had been treading since her happy infancy. Standing on that miserable eminence, she saw again her native village in old England and her paternal home, a decayed house of gray stone with a poverty-stricken aspect, but retaining a half-obliterated shield of arms over the portal in token of antique gentility. She saw her father's face with its bald brow and reverend white beard that flowed over the old-fashioned Elizabethan ruff, her mother's, too, with the look of heedful and anxious love which it always wore in her remembrance, and which face, glowing with girlish beauty and illuminating all the interior even since her death, had so often laid the impediment of a gentle remonstrance in her daughter's pathway. She saw her own of the dusky mirror in which she had been wont to gaze at it. There she beheld another countenance of a man well stricken in years, a pale, thin, scholar-like visage, with eyes dim and bleared by the lamplight that had served them to pore over many ponderous books. Yet those same bleared optics had a strange, penetrating power when it was their owner's purpose to read the human soul. This figure of the study and the cloister, as Hester Prynne's womanly fancy failed not to recall, was slightly deformed, with the left shoulder a trifle higher than the right. Next rose before her, in memory's picture gallery, the intricate and narrow thoroughfares, the tall gray houses, the huge cathedrals, and the public edifices, ancient in date and quaint in architecture, of a continental city, where a new life had awaited her, still in connection with the misshapen scholar, a new life, but feeding itself on time-worn materials, like a tuft of green moss on a crumbling wall. Lastly, in lieu of these shifting scenes, came back the rude marketplace of the Puritan settlement, with all the townspeople assembled and leveling their stern regards at Hester Prynne, yes, at herself, who stood on the scaffold of the pillory, an infant on her arm, and the letter A in scarlet, fantastically embroidered with gold thread, upon her bosom. Could it be true? She clutched the child so fiercely to her breast that it sent forth a cry. She turned her eyes downward at the scarlet letter and even touched it with her finger to assure herself that the infant and the shame were real. Yes, these were her realities. All else had vanished. <laughs> Okay, that's going to do it for this episode of The History of Literature. My thanks to Nathaniel Hawthorne and Hester Prynne. Don't you love her? One of my favorite characters in all of literature. Oh, Hawthorne, so good. Man, literature is the gift that keeps on giving, isn't it? I think so anyway. Think of this as my gift to you. I walked you down to the shore, helped you into the boat... Gave it a gentle little nudge, and now you're free to float on your journey. You can still send us an audio clip for our 300th show if you're so inclined, just a little mp3 or something. Maybe you could record it on your phone if you'd like to throw your voice into the mix. Ask a question, tell me your favorite author, make a request, whatever you'd like to do. We will gather those up and play them. If we can get our act together, we're (laughs) running out of time. Speaking of which, not running out of time, speaking of getting our act together, we have our act together this year. We're rolling along. We're still on our two-a-week pandemic schedule, although there may be some changes on that front coming up soon. We will see. In the meantime, you can support the show at patreon.com slash literature. If it's worth a little to you, this humble little podcast, please do consider throwing a few humble little coins in our cup each month, if you can. Or you can buy me a virtual coffee for five U.S. dollars or the equivalent in your home currency at historyofliterature.com shop. I will happily toast you and caffeinate myself, and I will thank you and the patrons for your kindness and generosity. We are teamed up with Lit Hub Radio and the Podglomerate at www.thepodglomerate.com. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.